how do we engage with the world from a place where we're what we're contributing is not triggering or activating but you know we are we are exerting some pressure you know like we are we are taking action but the pressure is not fueling the secondary kind of fire that's just about like it's just another distraction This is the Beware How Show, mystic philosophy made practical. There are many paths up the mountain, and we're just pointing at a few of them. I'm Bob Peck, speaking with Scott Stanley, Brian Paget, and Melina Kiriaki. We are conscious creatives and formerly closeted mystics trying to unpack the inaccessible. According to the mystics, the truth cannot be spoken, but we'll try to talk about it anyway. For Jeremy's episode, we cover a number of Hindu philosophy-related terms that you might not be familiar with. So very quickly, um, just going to define a few of these so any newcomers might not get lost in these Sanskrit terms we use. Uh, one is darshan, D-A-R-S-H-A-N. Darshan means uh, basically the holy image of a saint or an avatar or a, a divine being um, that graces you. There, there's a blessing energy aspect to uh, receiving the image of a saint. Uh, seva, S-E-V-A, means service. Essentially, it means helping others. Maharaji means great king. Um, It's a common name, but specifically Maharaji, when spoken about by anyone from the Ramdas community, it means Neem Karoli Baba, who was a Hindu guru in the 20th century. Sangha means community. It basically just means kind of like fellowship in Christianity, or um, it just means group of practitioners. Bhakta, B-H-A-K-T-A, means a devotional spiritual person, someone who is on the spiritual path but is influenced by music and poetry and song and dance and their emotions are tied. The heart is the path of the bhakta. Kirtan is devotional music for uh, the religious experience. It particularly refers to typically Hindu music. Um, Sitars and tablas and Sanskrit mantras are a huge part of Kirtan. Well, yeah, just getting comfortable where you're already sitting, whether you're on the floor or on a chair. Just really feeling the weight of our bodies, settling in with some deep inhales in through the nose and out through the mouth. Just like that, a few more inhales up and through the nose. And exhaling out through the mouth. Just settling into our space. 
feeling the energy on this Sunday. Just really honoring how we feel right here, right now. As we get to connect with Jeremy and enjoy this space and this Sunday together. And together, let's take one final inhale through the nose. And exhale. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Melina. There's always Thank you like guys. USBs and audios and things getting plugged in frantically. So it's nice to uh, <laughs> get centered yes. first. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way to start. Love that. Yes, just a moment to arrive is like how we like to call it. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, alrighty, well, I'm going to just read this short bio and uh, we'll jump right in. Today is Sunday, September 6th, and our guest today is Jeremy Hoffeld. Jeremy is a painter, a native New Yorker, and studied art history at Columbia University. His thesis on Paleolithic cave paintings in France, some of the oldest figurative and abstract art known to man, helped shape his thinking about the relationship between these two approaches to art. Hoffeld did an apprenticeship in painting and drawing in, at the Art Students League of New York, having previously spent two years copying old masters at Boston's Fog Art Museum and the Museum of Fine Arts. In Boston, he explored the ways in which figurative paintings can also function as abstract pictures, a principal tenet of his instructor, David Andrus. Hoffeld embraces ambiguity, a stance that is not necessarily unsettling, in his work. Indeed, his paintings are both evocative and pleasing. He says he feels no obligation to choose sides on some of the traditional debates over art, those between abstraction and figuration, the new and the borrowed, or even cliched, the bright and the muddy, the natural, primordial, and the synthetic, modern. Very beautiful um, bio and background to your work. Um, you know, we, we just love having you because we're all fans of um, your paintings. I think in particular, your portraits of saints on Instagram are very stunning and, uh, oh, you know, kind you. of keep, absolutely, they keep surfacing in, in Ramdas Sangha circles online. And, um, you know, you, you also live at the Ramdas Ashram. So we have a lot to cover today, but um, I think just if you would, First, just tell us a little bit more about your background, kind of just personal and professional. Yeah, that, um, I guess that little uh, blurb that you read is sort of accurate. Sounds pretty true. <laughs> Sometimes when you hear things written about yourself, it's like, who is that guy? But um, <laughs> yeah, I think when you try to construct a narrative of your life, especially if you're kind of nonlinear and you're your trajectory has been about like pulling different things together that don't necessarily seem um, like a cohesive whole, at least within, within the kind of narratives that we were brought up with in our culture, you know, in terms of vocation and stuff like that. 
it, it can feel kind of artificial in a way. Trying to construct a timeline is a strange thing to do. And it always feels kind of somewhat false to me. But well, I, I would prefer a very traditional A to Z <laughs> based biography about you. Yeah. No, no, I'm, not I, I'm not surprised we're already unpacking the philosophical <laughs> layers in this, but I'm so glad. Yeah. I realize that you, you're not expecting that. I just, I just <laughs> think it's an interesting reflection because when you try to look at the, the timeline of the way things unfolded, sometimes it becomes really unclear what led to what mm, and what sure. pulled you in. Totally. You know, a, a lot of times around Ramdas, um, people will talk about how they found Ramdas, uh, how they ended up there. And there are certain themes that come up like KD's music or, you know, some people Absolutely. fell in love with Maharaji who was Ram Dass's guru, or some people later came to understand Maharaji through Ram Dass or being devoted to Hanuman through being devoted to Ram Dass and Maharaji, this kind of cluster of, of devotional themes. Sure. Um, and for me, I think that the trajectory of my like creative interests and spiritual interests is sort of, uh, everything is sort of conflated and it's, it becomes hard to discern what came first. I think that my brother and I, uh, my brother is a musician also, he plays with Krishna Das and, and we share many kind of thematic interests in life. But as kids, we were already into a lot of the stuff that we're into now, just in a, maybe a more convoluted way and, you know, and less, um, yeah, with less understanding of what those things were. But we were always into making stuff, making art, making music, and we were into exploring um, sort of what would, could roughly be called spiritual ideas and interests from like kind of some of my earliest memories of our time together you know like early um pre-adolescence and and into the teen years and, and you know some of that involved exploring through marijuana and psychedelics and stuff like that and some of it was through books and um music and and Eastern, whatever Eastern stuff we could find, basically. <laughs> and Carlos Castaneda. And yeah, as a teenager, I was really, really interested in music and thought that I would be a professional musician and the art sort of slipped into the background. And, you know, and then art came back into the foreground. And those, those things have kind of been interlaced in my in my timeline playing music making art trying to get close to god uh beautiful yeah well there's a lot of i think intersectionality too between creativity and spirituality and we that's a common theme too on the show and kind of in our discussions between our friends is the the creative capacity the intuitive connective aspect of creating and how you're really plugging in if you're doing it right and 
you know, it's not over, over, over intellectualized or over rationalized, although that can be useful as a framework that seems like the best stuff is, is more on the inspiring side of things. Um, and so I'm not surprised that, uh, <laughs> it's all, uh, been a, been a, a quilt of, of inspo for you. Um, when you were growing up and, and your brother playing with Christian Das is so, it's so interesting and special. Um, I, I really like that to, to, to dive in more thoroughly kind of in those early years, I, I, the aspect about your thesis on, um, the Paleolithic cave paintings in France is so interesting. Um, would love to just kind of hear you, you know, share your thoughts about those discoveries. Yeah. I mean, that stuff, well, like a lot of artists have been really intrigued by the cave paintings and there's a power in that, in some of that art that's just unbelievable. It's so direct. So <clears throat> like being connected to that and being interested in that from a creative point of view is, um, is kind of understandable. I think any artist who looks at that stuff will, will be drawn to it. And there have been some famous examples of like Dubuffet, Jean Dubuffet and Picasso, who were really captivated by that art and trying to build a language in their own work that sort of incorporated some of those themes. Uh, what, what Dubuffet called art brute. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and for me, like at Columbia, because that atmosphere was so intellectual <laughs> and crit and critical, and I, I really actually struggled there a lot with that, you know, creatively, and uh, in my own personhood, trying to be okay in that environment. So that was a kind of a natural way to try to bring some something earthier and and more um more magical and, and connected to the things that i loved into the work that i was doing there and i was already trying to bring together this my interest in this like evolutionary biology and and stuff with the art so that was a way to bridge that gap. It's like, what, what does it mean to be a human being? You know, how mm -hmm. the fuck did we get here? <laughs> when did we start doing these things? Some big questions like that. And the answers that they were coming up with were less clear about that stuff. Whereas if you tried to write about like modern art or modernism or something um, more more recent there was just so much ink that had been spilled about those things already and the answers were so established you know mm. it was so, more of an open canvas if you will somewhat more open it's still yeah, very yeah. limited like <clears throat> i thought i could write a book about that stuff and some of my because you have an academic background right and you know that in that world like especially when you're an undergraduate, you can't really say what you, what you just feel and think. If you have some insight about something, especially in the sciences, everything has to be, yeah, referring to somebody else's work 
or some research Absolutely. validating a belief that's already been established. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Heavy so footnotes. It's, yeah. It's not enough to feel like this awe and inspiration for the subject matter and just to try to express that and to explore the beauty of it. You know, you're kind of you're kind of confined. You're kind of in a box. It's funny. It's- that, yeah. It's so true. Well, it's so true. I mean, I think visual art, like combined with like academic, like headiness, like there's, I could see a lot of friction there and like limitation, like you said, confining, confinement. So I, I think you selecting, you know, the cave paintings from 20,000 years ago that have these huge questions about human development psychologically and uh, civilization kind of stuff. Uh, that That's super cool. That's that, I think that's right on in your <laughs> kind of uh, anti, almost like anti-establishment type of veering off into that direction. <laughs> yeah. Veering off into the mystery. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> and nobody knows what that's, what that art was made for. I mean, yeah. it seems sometimes also people talk about it as if it's all one thing, like why were they making paintings in the caves? But that that art also spans thousands of years and different locations so of course people were making it for different reasons but it's very evident when you go into the caves that i visited in particular i don't know i haven't i didn't go to hundreds of different sites but it's very evident that there was something ritualistic going on there whatever it was there was importance Mm -hmm. in the making of that art that was not merely like um, uh, functional, you know. Well, it wasn't like, a blueprint for how to hunt the herd necessarily. It was there was symbolism and <laughs> yeah. Although that's one theory, and you know, hmm. there may be some there may be some good reason to think that that was true in some cases, but that definitely wasn't always the reason why they were making that art. And there was you know they were making fires and they were. They were playing music in there and they were doing things that were ceremonial. Wow. And yeah. And you can feel that. Although don't try to write that in an academic paper. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if it coincided with the discovery of fire, because that seems like art and fire were probably as far as evolutionary biology. Those are two major milestones and maybe they were maybe they were related to each other. Cause if you have a fire going, you can see the inside of a cave wall at night. I don't know. I don't know much about it, but yeah, those kind of questions are like, they're really evocative. And also when you, when you go in there and you see those things lit by a torch, which you can in some yeah. of the caves in France, then you see that the way the light moves around makes the animals and the figures kind of come to life in a different way wow, like yeah. they're flickering I love that. it's like a shadow box almost yeah so cool. it's super mind-blowing it's incredible wow how dare we just look at them on an empty textbook page, <laughs> page you know <laughs> devoid of rich experience <laughs> yeah it's it's a funny medium the academic yeah. medium it really is <laughs> What to do? We were, t- we were talking uh, when you and I spoke about a month or so ago. We had a great chat about some of these topics, and and um, you know, I think the 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 juice of today's conversation is is based around 
you injecting Darshan into feeds is how I like Mm -hmm. to think about it. (laughs) Um, You're just like, you're shoving is like that wrong verb probably because that has (laughs) like a physical fury, but maybe it's useful. Um, But um, just just floating in, uh, you know, these piercing eyes of Sri Ramana Mm -hmm. or or Anandamai Ma's bliss or... You know, the list goes on. You're very prolific, actually, which is another thing we should talk about. But you, you have so many different portraits of these saints and, and different uh, angles and colors and textures. And um, you're just I'm just very grateful for your work. It's very beautiful mm-hmm. that you are, mm-hmm. you know, uh, infusing our uh, typically mindless scrolling you know, not not to be nah. too cliche here, but because there's usefulness with social media, obviously, but. Thanks so much. Um, it's different than brunch photos, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, the social media is it's such a trip and it's such a mixed bag. To me, it's, that's like I think about the struggles of artists in the past. You know, like hmm. uh, there's some really famous examples like Van Gogh, who basically couldn't get anybody to see his work at all. Hmm. And I don't know if it's true or not, but I think he sold one painting and he had a brother who was an art dealer. And, you know, like just physically getting people to come and see your work in your studio is not easy. It was never easy. So when uh, when I understood a little bit about what Instagram was, which I was really not, it was a late, relative latecomer mm-hmm. to it. But the idea that you could get, all of a sudden you could get your work in front of hundreds or thousands of people. Um, I thought that's an amazing thing. We should protect this. And if people want to, it's easy for people to ridicule, like, oh, you're so self-absorbed. You just want to show people what you're doing. (laughs) Of course, in some cases, it totally looks like that, you know, on Instagram. This is, and I, and, you know, I, I, I felt party to that too. Like, it is it is this kind of like theater of look at me mm-hmm. but the potential of it is amazing mm-hmm. you know yeah, maybe I think it's, that self-awareness wait. is crucial though you know the the self-awareness of the layers to it is right. what helps you dispel some of those negative aspects yeah yeah we don't know out. The urge to share, you know, we don't know what it is. So even when you think, oh, I'm being a ham or whatever, you, you can't know for sure. I think about uh, Ramdas told my brother as an aside one time, this is probably totally, sorry, Baba, for sharing this. But <laughs> oh, no, I'm excited. He said, yes. They were, they were posing for a picture, like someone was taking a picture casually, and he told my brother, Noah, you should lick your teeth before someone takes a picture of you. So when you smile, your, your lip won't be stuck to your teeth, you know? <laughs> it makes your smile look better in a photograph. That's hilarious. So, you know, because he under- Years that, of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he understood public, that public his face was a vehicle for people connecting with, you know, with spirit or whatever. And that was part of his seva, part of his offering, part of his work. 
Yeah. yeah, he really seemed to come at the perfect time and just reflecting on him in preparation for this uh, interview with you. And I think I'll just do a quick disclaimer too. like the show is called Beware How? Question mark. It's a joke on Be Here Now. So people that are listening to this show, you're probably aware of Ram Das and Be Here Now. <laughs> but if you're not, um, you know, he was basically, you know, Terrence McKinnon described him as a secular holy man. Um, you know, he was a Harvard psychologist professor who also experimented with psychedelics with Tim Leary and then studied in India under Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, as well as a whole variety of Buddhist teachers and other Hindu swamis and, um, you know, kind of was an uncle to the counterculture and um, just t worked so tirelessly um, for decades and decades to spread spiritual information in an accessible, approachable, humble way, um, so well articulated from a consciousness evolution perspective, but also just so, he was just so damn joyful. He was just so, like, he, it, it was really clear, like, that it was a real transformation for him. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe you could talk about that, actually, because it seems like you guys, all, all the sangha, the community of, of, folks that live with him you guys all f seem to really feel that and, and have an inner tangible aspect yeah i think one aspect that really helped like for me ramdas was such a satisfying teacher in so many ways but one part that really stands out is like that honesty and mm. um the way in which he was comfortable or at least willing to sort of share his neurosis and what he perceived as his shortcomings Absolutely. and almost kind of lead with that made it so satisfying in a world where so many teachers are sort of fronting you know and yeah. even that i don't think with i don't need to feel condemning of that because there are so many there are so many traps out there but ramdas identified that and he maybe it was partly his background uh, in working as a psychiatrist psychologist yeah sorry i still don't know the difference between those things but his background <laughs> in, in psychotherapy yeah um you know look we're human beings we mm -hmm. suck in a lot of ways we're like <laughs> we mess up and we're neurotic and we we're uncomfortable in our beings a lot of the time in, in our bodies and and he was willing to talk about that and share from that place in such a brave way. Wow. Yeah, I, um, that's really what. Yeah. That's amazing. That uh, that's huge, and that I you just you talking about that actually brings up a lot for me because Ramdas was my the first kind of spiritual teacher that I had found and really lit that flame for me and just ignited my path. And one of the things that um. And I didn't even really think about how this has translated into my life now. But one of my favorite things about him was um, his willingness to just label and admit everything that was wrong with him and talk about it and normalize it, you know, and it has made my path so much easier in that way and learning how to love myself and my faults, you know, mm -hmm. because I hear Ram Das talk about it so easily and beautifully and totally normal and it makes it feel like everything's okay you know and it's that's absolutely Beautiful. one of my favorite parts about his teachings 
yeah, beautifully expressed. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, those parts of you would feel ostracized in the process, right? right? If you have some perfect teacher, anytime there's some ideal, there's brutality, right? Right. There's like, there's a kind of a violence that's going on when you're upholding this ideal, this image, and comparing yourself or comparing other people to that ideal. Exactly. And things are being left yeah. out and excluded and treated harshly. He says, uh, he says, quote, I have been meditating, doing yoga, chanting, doing strict devotional practices, studied under a Hindu guru, Buddhist meditation teachers, all of this for the past 25 years, and I haven't gotten rid of a single neurosis. <laughs> what, what has happened, though, is where they used to be these overwhelming, massive monsters. Now they're like little goblins. <laughs> oh, hi there, anger. How are you doing? Oh, hey, sexual perversion. Been a while since I've seen you. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, like, okay. how can you not love that man? Um you know, and that's true. There, I think there is incremental advances. You know, it, it, that's a useful aspect to his growth as well. And like, I think a lot of his stories too are kind of how he messed up and what he got out of it and what mm-hmm. he continues to work on. And, you know, I mean, just such a rich uh, a curriculum <laughs> for mm-hmm. a teacher. Yeah. Also the progress, but who would who would be there to note the progress, you know? Right. It's, it's like, what's the benchmark and who's, who's doing the measuring? Hmm. I mean, sometimes you may notice like some, something that really had a grip on you seems to have kind of fallen away or it's got less of a grip on you. But it could come back. (laughs) (laughs) I've had that experience. Oh, I'm so peaceful. And then, you know, and then you get in a certain situation where you're, the right buttons are being pushed. Mm-hmm. And there it is again. <laughs> I've, I've so, dropped all of my traps, so I can't really relate to what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. Bless you. Yeah. Yes. No, my wife uh, loves that because I'll be like explaining like, They'll say like Bob's church or whatever, you know, it's like 11 p.m. on the back of my porch and it's after a sermon drinks, time. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's sermon time. Exactly. And it's, uh, it's you know, gospel. some parable about the Buddha and this, you know, thing. And then and people are just like captivated. And then the next morning I'm like banging the, you know, washer dryer. And my wife is like, oh, really, Buddha? Like that was a great like story last night. Like. <laughs> um, you know, maybe be mindful now, you know, so significant others help with that awareness, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but, but no, the it's, dark it's a constant thing, realization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Holding those parts of you tenderly and exactly. not, uh, not, um, like you said, I like how you put it being, uh, don't be like brutal against yourself when you see an ideal like mm-hmm. that and, and not just instantly turn to yourself and like, well, look how different I am from that ideal. How terrible am I, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like the mind. Yeah, that's our conditioning there. anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The whole ideal, the upholding of an ideal is written into our culture. And I, I think it didn't start with the culture that we think of as ours. Like it goes way back. Mm-hmm. Plato and his ideals, the forms. It's a philosophical 
underpinning of our culture that we create these ideas of like what's perfect perfection and then we compare things on this plane to that ideal and it's sort of like it's a huge obstacle to like the acceptance that the ideal thing is actually this complicated mess that's Mm -hmm. it must be ideal because it's what is right it's what we're it's what we're here for um but I, I was not trying to dodge the question about the dark thing. <laughs> That's but, all right. <laughs> yeah. I think what basically what happened was that I just got obsessed with trying to paint those people, those beings. Yeah. And yeah, and then sort of started putting them out there and then there were, you know, there were people that were into that and or some people, a certain number of people yes, were into we are. that. And so then I kept doing it and it just it was just an enjoyable thing and i realized like well it's become really clear to me lately more more so than even when i started doing that that i was kind of like darshan obsessed Hmm. and there was a time when i was really preoccupied with like teachings and reading books and stuff and I think that comes and goes, but I don't have as much hunger lately for, you know, checking out this teacher and that teacher. And I think the the preoccupation sort of shifted to this feeling of like being around the people who had a lot of juice, even though it could be really scary too, you know, but like trying to get close to in a natural kind of way, mm-hmm. whoever was around either physically or through a picture or an image or whatever, who had like some juice, even if it, even if I couldn't make sense of what that was, you know, when I was in Rishikesh, I tried to get a minute with Muji because I felt, I don't know what that is, but, but Muji's got something. He's special. And, yeah. Yeah. And spending time with Ramdas was, you know, sometimes it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Just, just coming up to the house, I would be going through, you know, incredible machinations of like panic and fear and unworthiness and all that stuff. But mm. wanting to be close to that light. Mm. And that was a Ramdas who was not really, it wasn't the talking version of Ramdas that is mm. most um the talking part that is most um known he was really he was quiet a lot of the time um but his In presence his was years. just so yeah his presence was just so enormous you know and and kind of addictive too mm-hmm. mm. He almost kind of, from a distance, in in my understanding of his, like, just maturation, he really almost, like, kind of grew into Maharaji. You know, he, he, he had a stroke, famously, in the late 90s or early 2000s, and, um, you know, lived in a much uh, different capacity after that. He had a lot of physical pain. He had caretakers and spoke very slowly, comparatively, especially his lectures, <laughs> 70s, 80s, and 90s, where he was kind of rapid fire, uh, you know, rapid fire thought machine. And uh, to go from that to, to a very muted 
um, quality was definitely a different era transition. But he still, to your point, seemed to really still carry, um, you know, the juice, as you put it, that that uh, that presence. Yeah, I don't I don't have a comparison because I didn't meet him before mm -hmm. the stroke. But for me, it just aligned really perfectly with the time that I that I was able to be around him. Um, that it was really just about like being in that space. Mm -hmm. And that was that was really what I was hungry for, and yeah, and like I said, it was also it could be really terrifying, and I uh, a lot of times I felt really <laughs> just like frozen with fear. One night I remember. Like, yeah, no, I want to hear this. No, you you go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, do you feel so here feeling the the terrifying and the panic or anxiety as you're and I'm envisioning you, you know, walking up into it, opening a door. Does that kind of almost melt away? I'd love to hear you describe what the actual experience was once you were, you know, in his presence and with him. Yeah, he could be very disarming, you know, uh, immediately when you saw him, but also, uh, well, he was a master of eye contact. And sometimes he could look at you longer than maybe you ever, unless you went to a, wow. a cacao ceremony with eye gazing or whatever. <laughs> but uh, he could look at you for longer than you were accustomed to wow. holding <laughs> eye contact. So it wasn't always easeful. But yeah, I think what happened when, when my experience of being with him was that... Um, I would sort of ease into that space where more of me was coming through than I was accustomed mm -hmm. to. And it was like he was kind of holding space for that experience. But there's a little part of you that still like could be terrified in the build up to it. And for me, it didn't really go away. Mm -hmm. I didn't really get more comfortable with it over the- Was it, a, was it the vulnerability shockwave of it? More, like as far as like under the fear I don't know what that thing is about I've heard other people mm -hmm. talk about it and I've heard people talk about it in relation to the guru and I've had that experience in my life with the you know using the guru in the like strict Indian sense of the word where you know like if you were studying music and your teacher or your tablet teacher would be your guru you know in the Indian understanding of that word there, there are layers of, of this guru, you know, where you, you may have your, uh, your guru dev or your sat guru, uh, who's the center of all of your feelings of devotion. But then there are these people who play this role in your life that you're, you're following them. They're leading you in some capacity. And that was a really long winded, Many, many masks had, of the one kind of almost you know yeah 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 and sometimes it can be a very um like uh a pragmatic thing that you're learning from this person mm -hmm. but i've had that experience of kind of being drawn to and running away from the same time at the same time from one of these figures in my life mm -hmm. and i've heard other people talk about that this strange thing of being like so connected and wanting this thing that's being offered and also simultaneously sort of hightailing it the other way. 
<laughs> and sometimes, you know, engaging in negative behavior patterns or whatever that are like contrary to that thing that you're mm -hmm. ostensibly like seeking out or trying mm -hmm. to embody. I, I don't know. It's, people are just super weird. I think that's what it comes down to. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I think there's hesitation ego, too in like self-evolution. I mean, that's seems yeah. like that's what it is. Ego, a little afraid of a, a cleansing fire that that might be so intense that it's uncomfortable. I could I could imagine that. I mean, it's Definitely. I've never really had the chance to be in a presence of of someone like that. But uh, but it's, yeah, that sounds it, true. It, and yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, no, that, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're being afraid of the cleansing and also just maybe like being afraid of being exposed. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a fraud. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm whatever, whatever your, your, uh, your worst thoughts I'm about yourself are. <laughs> I'm an imposter, classic. Mm -hmm. I don't deserve to be here. Yeah, I remember exactly. one night when like I was, was staying saying, in the shack at, at Ramdas. I, I came home like later than I usually did. And I was, I was staying in this little shack that was right kind of outside of the main house and within earshot of his bedroom. And I was struggling to get out of my car because it was parked at like a little bit of an angle. And I had some shit in the car that I was trying to get out with me. And I leaned against the horn oh, no. on the car. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't just like a little uh, it was like, uh, like uh, <laughs> oh my gosh disturbing uh, the most sacred uh, corner of the island yeah that i think that sort of encapsulated that feeling oh that was the epitome yeah. of that feeling wow. it like manifested yeah, I'm gonna crawl <laughs> under the car right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Just act like nothing so happened. Uh, Cease to exist. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> so funny. He probably laughed. <laughs> I think he actually was a much more solid sleeper than I realized. Uh. But, but yeah, that's, that's that feeling. That's I beautiful. am so small. Mm -hmm. I just want to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like like you were saying, those neuroses never go away, even if even if you are in the middle of, you know, an ashram, ashram. or whatever, yeah. whatever the most calming place can be. Right. Uh, but especially if you push on a, a car horn, that'll that'll bring up some some neuroses real quick. <laughs> totally. We we really enjoyed your interview with Dasima. Melina um, and I were talking mm -hmm. about it because. Oh, thanks. Her, the the devo her devotion comes through. You you can hear oh, her affection yeah. for him so clearly. You can really, um, it's just so tangible. What he the impact that he made on all of you guys and gals. It's so beautiful to see. Yeah, Dasima is probably the most devoted seva practitioner that I've met. She. <clears throat> Her commitment to to Ramdas is really unbelievably beautiful to see and experience. And now, I mean, for I think it was maybe twelve years. I don't really know the exact timeline, but I think 
at least 12 years she was looking after Ramdas and kind of looking mm-hmm. after every aspect of life around him mm-hmm. which meant scheduling visits and phone calls and retreats, retreats and, and everything yeah. that was happening Logistics, and also yeah. yeah and managing progressively over time the people who were looking after Ramdas mm-hmm. with her like the caretakers mm-hmm. which started as just one I mean I think at first it was just her but then he needed more help getting around. Um, and by the end, I think there were, there were four guys who were there helping with her. Um, and now that's morphed into keeping um, his legacy alive and spe- specifically in, um, in, that, in the space where he, where he lived, you know, which is so charged. And so that's become the Hanuman Maui and the Ramdas Loving Awareness Sanctuary. And Dasima is really, yeah, she's putting everything she's got now into making that happen. And obviously this is a really strange time to be trying to do that because people can't casually come and visit Mm -hmm. and et cetera, you know, everything that we all know, but Mm -hmm. she's still holding that vision and, making that happen when kind of the obvious or perhaps what seemed like the obvious path to take would be to like move Ramdas's stuff out of there and disperse the what the relics basically yeah like relics or <laughs> yeah i think relics is the right word which would feel so i mean it, it would just be enormously challenging and mm. and for her i think when she felt into it, it just wasn't the move. Yeah, and I so, don't think we contextualized. He his his incarnation finished in December of 2019. He mm-hmm. he passed on uh, then, and so yeah. So this year has been, you know, your you guys as community adapting to 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 the new era. Uh, without him, obviously, his presence still, like you say. Uh, is retained but um you know and even Dasima said he was so ready to go i mean mm-hmm. i think he he was you know he was an old man in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. talking about this stuff so let alone a few more decades and a stroke and then another decade or so and so uh, i think there was an article like last september i want to say in one of like rolling stone or something about him that was like i think the headline was like ram das is ready to die you know like yeah he, he was like I'm going to go be with Maharaji and um, I'm not afraid. And, you know, it was like, you know, I think, uh, you know, a long, a, losing a young life is tra- tragic, heartbreaking. It's like theft, you know, but, but when you, he was a nineties or 88, I think he's an old man and he had a beautiful, beautiful, full, full incarnation that, um, you know, planted so much. Yeah. So it seems almost merciful at that point. Still, yeah, the grief, people's grief doesn't really, like, it's not mitigated by circumstances, you know? Sure. Mm. I think that also, that came through in what Dasima said, that he was so ready to go, and she's sort of trying to um, uh, to embody his perspective in that mm-hmm. moment, but you can also see that yeah. she still, it still hurts, still you know? Yeah. 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 
especially when you're when you're I mean for 12 years being his caretaker and being by his side and I think the what I really connected and what she was saying and I think I also mentioned this to Bob is just the the mere fact of wanting to tell someone something and them <laughs> being in your life all the time yeah. and just being used to sharing you know something that happened and um I will, the, my favorite part of that interview is just when she looks up into the sky and she's like, I'm going to still tell him. I'm just telling him in a different way, you know? And so, uh, that was beautiful. Um, so it was just really, really great. Yeah. Yeah. So sweet. Mm -hmm. And they, yeah, they definitely had that, um, such an intimate connection living together in that way. And Dasima was always, um, at least from my perspective, like, kind of trying to keep life fun and interesting and let's go on an outing where where do you want to go around us you know what would you so there's a whole mundane part of life that's almost um sure i don't know she probably wouldn't like the that, wheelchair but, can't make it off the step and that yeah or also and you know yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah we got to keep life fun and keep it stimulating and go and do things and mm -hmm. and he and and Ramdas really loved that. He loved to go to the beach and he loved to go and see people. And he was very extremely social, extremely social person. Yeah. Well, when you're just radiating sunshine, <laughs> he has this quote I that I, okay. I remember seeing a video of him dancing in his wheelchair. Yes. Uh, like, and that was so great. Yeah. <laughs> Such a vibe. <laughs> he, has a, he has this great quote that i'd love to just touch on because i, I do want to talk about your your racial injustice portraits also but i just want to i can't help but read my, one of my favorite ram das quotes um, which is kind of obscure i think it came out of a lecture and i don't see it quoted that much but it, it really um it really helped me a lot he says quote i'm in an I'm in an environment where if that person wants to come out and play from the pain and suffering, here I am. And if they're in the pain and suffering, here I am. But there's nothing in me that's keeping them stuck in the pain and suffering, and there's nothing in me demanding they come out. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's about really as high cool. up as it gets to me. Yeah, yeah. Feel very safe. That's compassion. It's not inflicting demands, but it's present. Presence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Being with what is. Jeremy, um, I have a couple questions. Uh, just curious about um, kind of your time in the ashram, um, when did you, uh, kind of first go there and, and, and when did it become kind of a full-time thing for you? And, um, I'm also curious just about kind of what your day-to-day -day looks like now and your involvement with the ashram and, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really feel like I have an affiliation in any kind of formal sense. Okay. So it's really just about like relationships and connection. Sure. And I mean, I first went there to, with the, the express purpose of painting Baba's portrait. Mm. And that was just like a, you know, just felt like a great honor to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually, at the time I didn't have any expectation that that would 
develop into some kind of um, deeper connection with that, like the satsang or the sangha. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I was still kind of in collecting mode at that time. And I mean, that's one of the things that, that artists do anyways, that, um, or many artists do, and I think I relate to that thing, is like this series work where you think of something that you want to do. If you paint a tree, then you think, oh, I have to paint, you know, a whole bunch of trees. <laughs> make that make sense. I'm going to make 20 paintings of tree portraits. Uh, so I had this list of people that I was trying to make portraits of in my mind. And some of them still are still alive in there, but I didn't expect to have this kind of familial connection with with Baba and with the people there when I went there. And that's kind of how it ends up feeling. Mm -hmm. And with Dasima, I definitely have this feeling that um, something kind of motherly about her, but you know, it's not, um, it's not confined to that kind of definition of, of, yeah. of mother. Yeah. There's this, but there's this feeling that I want to take care of her. And, and a lot of times I've experienced that from her, her wanting to take care of me and wanting to, wanting me to know, you know, that she loves me and that kind of motherly vibe, which is really beautiful. Um, and yeah, so I actually have come and gone during that time and I don't have any formal affiliation with the, with the ashram, as you're calling it, which I think is a nice word for it. Mm. It was, I never really thought of it as an ashram actually when, when Ramdas was there, because it was just like his home, mm. which happened to be spacious enough to accommodate the people who were, um, looking after him Seeking and then out too, yeah. yeah and then like you know in hawaii it's very common when you build a house you'll have another little house on the property mm. which the zoning accom accommodates i think across the board in hawaii that house is called the ohana and ohana means family mm -hmm. which you know yeah, if if you've seen lilo and stitch you know that already <laughs> <laughs> and um so at, yeah, in the Ohana, that was a place where retreatants could come. And I think they would stay for like a week usually. I'm not really sure, five days or a week or whatever to, uh, to visit with Ramdas and to kind of have their own experience too. It wasn't, it wasn't very guided. So they could come and stay in the Ohana and, um, and meditate or do whatever kind of sadhana they were into or not, eat food, you know, go to the beach and then spend some time, come to a few dinners with Ramdas and maybe have a couple of one-on-one uh, -on -one discussions with him about whatever they wanted to talk about. So it kind of just developed like that. And now, now that he's not there, then you know, if, if we weren't in this weird period of kind of being shut down globally or whatever is going on, um, then I guess people would be coming and staying mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. retreats and 
um, in the future, probably there will be uh, teachers coming and leading retreats in different capacities there and people will be visiting. And I think it will look more like, as you said, an ashram. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of material about the kind of the Jack Cornfield and Raghu Marcus and that whole, that whole group of, you know, associated teachers really with him right. that, um, that were doing some of those retreats and workshops to larger audiences with him. And then it looks like, yeah, you guys will be continuing that. Yeah, the future, they could so. definitely, all those people, Staying I think it would tuned. be, it will be great for them to come and lead retreats when that's possible again. Yeah. And, uh, and I assume that they'll, there will be more, um, of the large retreats, the oil hip retreats on Maui when they're able to do that. Um, yeah. So my, my relationship has been one of like coming and going and staying there and day to day, uh, is day to day life. Sometimes mm. we're just doing things around the property. Mm. Uh, we built a deck in recent Ooh. times. Nice. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's just a lot of things to do as, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And it, in that, this particular part of Hawaii, it can rain a lot. Things grow very rapidly. Birds, oh. I was just about to say, the birds in the background are beautiful. Just immediately yeah. calmed the whole entire thing. So, would you, so are you still kind of in this come and go uh, situation, or do you feel that you're more permanently in the sanctuary um, now? I No, I think I'm going to stay on Maui okay. for, yeah, for the foreseeable future. Very cool. Uh, also, it's just not a good time to to be moving around. Mm -hmm. yeah, right, right. And right. we're blessed yeah, to a have a relatively place to be locked in. Great quarantine place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean you can still enjoy the the natural environment. So Absolutely. that's a, that's a real blessing. I don't want to rub that in anyone's face. <laughs> I do I feel very fortunate to be here. Yeah, gratitude. Gratitude. Yeah. yeah. And you're you're also you know segueing into more on the series piece. I mean you're 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 ingesting that positive energy and uh, broadcasting it outward uh, in June July when the kind of movements to combat racial injustice um, really stepped up in America. Um, you you started contributing a, a new series to your Instagram of. Um, particularly black American kind of heroes from Frederick Douglass to James Baldwin to Harriet Tubman, Maya Angelou, uh, the list goes on Coltrane. Um, and, um, yeah, I just, I, I'd love to hear you talk more about that series. Yeah, those, I mean, those interests were not new to me at all. I mean, and it's probably really inappropriate to say, but as a teenager, I, I wanted to be John Coltrane, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. I think I, you know, it's perfectly appropriate <laughs> to say that's, that's one way of saying like, I, I wanted to really connect with, with yeah. African-American culture, you know, that was just innate in my, and that's been an ongoing theme. And well, he was I also what, particularly spiritual. Yeah. I mean, Coltrane, John was, Coltrane was, yeah, he was like a Bacta, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. His, his music was, I mean, and, and that 
even I think that word wouldn't be foreign to him because Alice Coltrane was basically playing Kirtan. Right. And quite the devotee. Yeah. yeah, he really bridged that gap. And I think when he started doing it, like, you know, some of his his jazz contemporaries were mystified by where he was heading, but there was a really natural way to use that language. The amazing, yeah. like the the you know the uniquely American jazz art form is like it's such an incredible language and it's so capable of expressing so many nuances. And he started channeling that toward basically toward absolutely God, you know, mm-hmm. to his desire to be close to God. I mean, he, yeah, to me, John Coltrane is really like a sage and such a hero. Love that. But <clears throat> yeah. And totally, you know, I think you get these moments where things like outer shifts sort of cannot be ignored. And there's, there was a shift happening. There is a shift happening in our culture. And um, it's hard to know what to contribute, especially, you know, as a, as a Caucasian, um, sometimes there's this feeling of i mean there's just so many feelings that you feel in this situation one of them is helplessness Mm -hmm. and another obvious one that comes up i think for a lot of uh, white people is a sense of guilt Mm -hmm. and and shame and actually it felt it doesn't feel natural to me to contract like and be quiet Mm -hmm. even though so I think there was kind of a dual pressure at that time. Like one was like, uh, you have to speak up because silence is violence or whatever. Like you have to say something. And another pressure yeah. was like, be quiet. Like don't, don't hog the stage. Yeah. Listen. <laughs> and yeah. And yeah. listening, I think is beautiful and such a beautiful practice. And I feel like I can definitely, grow in that practice usually but it didn't feel authentic to me to shut up either because it doesn't resonate didn't resonate with me and doesn't resonate with me Mm -hmm. on like a heart level and in my own practice in my own heart i feel not so connected to these kind of roles i don't believe in them so much like the differences of the what i see as superficial differences scientifically they're insubstantial and on a heart level they're insubstantial on a soul level they're insubstantial experientially they're huge you know because people people's experience is so uh so much connected to their appearance in the world Mm -hmm. and and the you know the circumstances of their birth etc um so like we're caught in a huge paradox and it's really hard to know how to act or what to say and what not to say and what to share and what not to share one of my gurus um one of my teachers dharma mitra who i studied yoga with and i continue to feel connected with uh speaks a lot about karma and reincarnation and how we all pass through all of 
the experiences and that's part of what we're here for. And, you know, I wish I could share that perspective with everyone. And I think Dharma has a way of sharing it with people where um, it's really expansive for people. And it, it actually what you feel when you, when you understand or believe in karma and reincarnation from that perspective is a total sense of optimism mm -hmm. and empowerment and happiness, empowerment. Mm -hmm. But the Western, like in the West, if you say the word karma, a lot of people think it means retribution. Mm -hmm. So like we're being punished for something or karma is a bitch. This is such a horrible slogan, you know, because karma As opposed to a cosmic curriculum kind of The curriculum, unfolding. exactly. Yeah. This is the schoolhouse. And actually, like Dharma says, there's millions of blue planets, you know, and there's, there are infinite other schoolhouses. But this is the schoolhouse that we currently find ourselves in. And we're working, yeah. each of us, there's a shared curriculum, obviously, or we wouldn't be able to converse about shared topics. Mm -hmm. But each of us has our own curriculum. And on some level, everybody's experience is perfect. But that doesn't mean just sit back and relax, you know. That's why we have the Bhagavad Gita, you know, Krishna yeah. is explaining to Arjuna. No, this is the yoga of action. You have to get on. You have to pick a side. You can't just sit back, mm -hmm. you know, and 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 just chill out and watch the show go by. So you still have to speak up when you see something wrong. If you mm -hmm. if you're on the subway and you see somebody being attacked or maligned or whatever, and you're in a position to do something, you have to try to do something. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we understand. Um, but you can't tell anybody else that. But you can understand in your own life everything I'm going through is perfect. It's what I'm here to do, or it wouldn't be showing up for me. Exactly. Um, but you know, when somebody cuts me off on the road, <laughs> I'm still like, you know, <laughs> I'm still pissed <laughs> off. I'm still a victim. And I'm, I'm not saying that I, that I throughout my days embody that perspective. That's a goal for it's me. A goal. Yeah. But I, yeah. So, so I think as people who are kind of on the path, and for me, that includes all kinds of people. Like this is not, th these are not just white people in, in Lululemon pants. You know, these are like the people that I feel connected to in, in the satsang and the sangha at large are people who are working with these kind of themes. Like how do we engage with the world from a place where we're, what we're contributing is not triggering or activating but you know we are we are exerting some pressure you know like we are we are taking action but the pressure is not fueling the secondary kind of fire that's just about like it's just another distraction mm -hmm. you know because you can't get to that place that we all want to be which is basically just a place of love, right? You can't get to that place through non-love. Right. That, that's so, my... So well articulated. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I wanted you to 
go on as much as you wanted to cover on that because it's definitely a topic that we we talk a lot about and um we had a social action episode that really we really kind of un- tried to unpack a lot of these ideas um as far as like compassion in action and you know kind of speaking of ram das uh you know that was a huge component of his life he he you know the save a foundation which cured blindness in hundreds of thousands of uh, nepalese he uh, worked with refugees he worked in the prison ashram project he worked with the dying you know he was kind of anything uh but a detached uh distant you know the, the, there's such a huge i think misunderstanding about spirituality to mainstream society that it's this lofty you know cushion only or himalayan you know detached environment and it really it, it doesn't seem to be that uh, you know the the fuller read really is that these practices can help bring our fuller sense of compassion and connectiveness to our daily lives and to our actions and to our communities to our connected yeah. potential yeah i mean there is the danger and that's why i think that's why there's so much discussion about like spiritual bypass and um, these are necessary things for people to at least look at for themselves mm-hmm. and you know nobody's perfect like everybody everybody's working with their own stuff and trying to be trying to be helpful isn't always easy even if you have the best intentions like there's there's no guarantees about the outcome Mm -hmm. um i think yeah for for creative people playing ostrich is never a good bet anyway like if you try to pretend that nothing's going on you just keep going about doing that thing that you were doing keep painting that you know flowers that you've always been painting (laughs) i don't know but i redirected your creative capacity to a really beautiful series that you know highlights i think a lot of uh, icons in american history that are you know under you know slept on frankly and so i just so enjoyed seeing those portraits uh this summer yeah i um i really love that you followed your heart and your gut in terms of your reaction to um because i think that is at the core what everyone should be trying to do is maybe not listen so much to what's right or wrong um obviously being aware is super important just like you said being aware of top of the idea of like spiritual bypassing things like that but still wherever you feel to take action um just listening to your heart and your gut and your body and what your body's telling you you know and um i love that you you stuck with that and that's the decision that you made yeah to me i feel like the there's a very broad change that's happening that's um that's sort of like overarching in our culture which is like this infusion of uh of a more receptive point of view or at least a need for it and it's super weird the way that there's all of this antagonism and stuff that comes up at the same time but i see it as like a reaction to that change that's sort of it's like a wave that's that's flowing through us Mm -hmm. like through our culture through the atmosphere that we're living in and yeah, birth pangs. There's, yeah, maybe. exactly. Yeah, 
and then there's resistance that comes up to it. So you see like all the worst aspects of humanity are kind of flaring up mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. But I actually do feel like there is something really positive that's a shift and it's just gonna take a while. I don't know how long, yeah. I have no idea. Uh, that actually sparked something for me. Um, I a lot of what I've been studying over the last year is, um, yeah, stepping into fear and learning how to listen to resistance. And what I have found oftentimes is that um, the resistance and all of the fear and all the deepest, darkest parts really flares up in its most peak and its most prime right before it's about to kind of break through um, because it's the last, it's like the last push, you know, straight through it. So um, I really love the thinking about this in that way it, it makes me feel nice it's uh i really hope that that's what's happening you know mm, yeah let's all hold that hope let's hold that vision well and and again ram das he's the theme today of like his quotes about like how angry people are at peace rallies you know like, <laughs> like we gotta have peace you know and it's like, yeah like let's really it's... embody it first or you know <laughs> it has to come from a fuller yeah and maybe when whenever there's like a real um a debate that just is intractable and just won't go away maybe there's something in consciousness that's trying to find like a middle ground mm. and you know between like martin luther king's perspective i'm i'm not scholarly at all so if i, if I say something that's historically inaccurate or whatever please forgive me mm -hmm. But, um, you know, coming from basically like a Gandhian principle of nonviolence and peace and love and basically came from India, Martin Luther King's perspective, as I understand it, and trying to bring that, that perspective into American culture and yes. into racial tension and I mean, incredible Heavily strife. influenced. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and then the debate between that poll and the kind of and the Malcolm X poll, any means necessary, you know, um, why were there these two figures who were so prominent and so easily juxtaposed? Like what, what's the, what's the storyline trying to tell us about that? Like, mm. you know, there's duality. Yeah, there's duality. Mm. And there's also maybe there's something that's trying to come about that's in between those two poles i don't know yeah there, uh, there's a lot of nuance to in those two figures and i think it is useful historically to understand them in a kind of binary way but but um you know king was fearless and 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 x was conciliatory in some ways i mean they, they they've kind of been caricatured in my again also i mean yeah. limited understanding from a scholarly point of view also but i think they 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 there's some nuance with both of them i mean even even king marching in the south when i mean some of the footage comes out where there's gunshots going off from white folks that aren't too interested in i mean the, the his house was had bricks thrown in the windows and churches were bombed and uh, you know i mean there was there was a lot of violence all around him and so you know to be kind of a he really was a bodhisattva you know that's what Thich han called him he was he was kind of the eye in the storm you know mm. he just had that impenetrable 
sense of who he was and the role he was playing that um, transcended, you know, such a complex time in our history. But yeah, he, what a what a what a saint, modern day saint to me, absolutely. Mm. I speaking of Thich Nhat Hanh, I was listening to a lecture of his. Uh, he's comes up on the podcast often, and uh, he said when he was a boy, he was explaining his entry into Buddhism, and he said that. He was a little kid that was into spirituality, and uh, he said he just saw a picture of a calm, joyful Buddha sitting in nature, and he said, I want to be like that, (laughs) because people around him, he said, people around him were not happy like that, and um, I just thought that I would share that with you, Jeremy, because you paint images of holy men and women, and uh, so may you... May you paint uh, inspiration for the next Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think about Thich Nhat Hanh's talking about uh, statues of the Buddha. I don't, I don't know where he was talking about that, but it always sticks with me that sometimes uh, statues of the Buddha that, are, you know, the smile is not the smile of the Buddha, you know, because they were, <laughs> these were made by people and sometimes... Hmm. Uh, sometimes they don't the carry mark. that essence. It's interesting yeah. his connection with with these images. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, I was really devoted to his teaching for a while and spent a little time at the at their monastery in New York, mm. in Pine Bush. Uh, it's called Blue Cliff, where oh, beautiful. yeah monastics from that community live there. And I think he used to pass through there too <clears throat> when he was still traveling. Amazing. Yeah. He's a force, and you painted a portrait of him also. I'm just going to be plugging your Instagram throughout the uh, episode. Um, Really, I just have, we have kind of a formulaic final question. Um, It's really just a a, a book referral, essentially. I mean, just give us, give us a, you know, a few or one even favorite book, uh, obscure to mainstream Really, just kind of who's someone, writer, thinker that that you think more people should be aware of that uh, you know, helped uh, along the way. Well, there are so many books. I think you and I spoke a little bit about autobiography of a yogi. Yeah, <laughs> Paramahansa <laughs> Yogananda. Yeah, which Beautiful. I mean, that book has led so many people. Yeah. yeah, to yoga, and for me, that I think that book really reignited my yearning to. Um really do the practice and to meet the people that could help me mm. and that kind of that led me to Dharma Mitra that book I feel like that book mm. if I had to recommend one book that's the one that comes to mind right now Amazing. it makes you believe that those things are possible right right that's exactly how I feel yeah. about it it's so spectacular but it's so clear we, we did a whole episode on it because we're all fans of it and um that was that was one of the themes was like I read one of the pieces and it, it's such a fantastical uh, <laughs> scene, but it's so like he obviously felt did it because he didn't like the, it's so sharply described mm-hmm. that he yeah. articulates the consciousness like the experiential consciousness of it so clearly like you incredibly just, it, yeah. it, it's it's undeniable. <laughs> Can I say one more Beautiful. book? Please. Yes. Please. 
<laughs> this is a really different kind of book, but I have to sure. I have to say Perfect. that um, it's had like a profound impact on my life, and it's especially like sort of directed to people who are interested in creativity of different kinds, and that's sure. the artist's way. Yes, by Julia Cameron. Oh, yes, yeah, it's actually like more of a program than it is a book, and it's sort of you know like it's it can be embarrassing to kind of surrender to it because there are exercises in there and a lot of it is geared toward kind of getting you to be mm -hmm. playful and and to explore your creative interests mm -hmm. and your like your just general enthusiasm for things in life that you may have put up firewalls hmm. for Seems you know extremely as useful a, yeah so <laughs> I, I recommend that book the artist way by Julia Cameron. It I keeps it keeps coming up in really my life. Fun. You are, I think, the third or fourth person to say it in the last like two months, and uh, it's wow. been my intention to start it. Um, I just moved into a new house, and in my head, I'm saying, you know, as soon as I get settled in here, I'm gonna get started on it because it just keeps coming mm -hmm. up in my life. So fantastic! Wow, you needed to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Uh, she also, yeah, uh, Morning Pages mm -hmm. is, is from The Artist Way, right? Yep. Yeah, that's a big that's part her. of it. Yeah. And, you know, many people are writing in their journal every day or kind of every day anyway. Um, she sort of tapped into that aspect of the artistic practice where you're, you have this dialogue with yourself that you keep up and you you sort of take account of everything that's going on in your days and that's affecting you. And, you know, the, the little thing that somebody said that sort of stung or the words of encouragement or the little idea that you've been kind of trying to suppress about going and trying something different or exploring some new, you know, mm. new avenue of creativity or otherwise cooking something mm. different. Mm -hmm. It's it's We're really wearing cool. down yeah. that limitation thought pattern. Exactly. Right? And the yeah. sensor. Yeah. Which yeah. is that, you know, that grown up fucker that we all have inside of us <laughs> that's inhibiting us, keeping us from doing the things that are really uh, sparking joy for us. Mm -hmm. and, you know, expansive things. Definitely. May we all rid ourselves of it. <laughs> yeah jeremy thanks or, so much for joining thank you all so much thanks for having me yeah, absolutely wonderful to meet you yeah it's amazing Likewise. to meet you and you know yeah, share this time thank you so much our love to the ramdas sangha thank Appreciate you appreciate you i love to bye ram ram Thank you for listening to the Beware House Show. Follow us on Instagram, Spotify, subscribe to our YouTube or Apple Podcasts, or do none of these and just be. Thank you.